could turn again to Romans chapter 9. Uh, we're pushing on towards about the two-thirds of the way uh, mark here in the book of Romans. We'll finish up chapter 9, move on to chapter 10 next week. But the Apostle Paul, remember that this, this whole section from chapter 9 to chapter 11 deals very specifically with national Israel, with the Jewish people. God's design and plans for them as a whole, uh, much as we would talk about America being a Christian nation, God had foreseen uh, the Jewish people as being his promised people, his chosen people, the people who would represent him here on this earth. That is still God's plan, but because of rebellion, because of unrighteousness, uh, those plans have been forestalled, yet they have not been eliminated And so the focal point as we continue on and we'll finish up chapter 9 tonight uh, still is national Israel. And he's going to use some very beautiful examples that we can lay hold of. And here's where the tie comes to us tonight. While this is speaking of national Israel to the Jewish people specifically, there are some very important spiritual principles that we can glean uh, as believers in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ as Gentiles, as those who are non-Jews. And one of those is, it is quite capable for us to harden our hearts. And people do frequently, and they do often. And so we see in this particular passage this remaining uh, unbelief that's presented to us as we pick up in verse 14. And three very specific things that will be in view. Uh, The righteousness of God, the justice of God, and then finally the grace of God. And praise God for the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Would you join me and let's pray. Father, we are again just so delighted to be able to be here tonight and to study your word. And so we pray as we read it that you would encourage and strengthen us with it. We pray that you give us hope for the future. Lord, that as the the world does and will wax worse and worse, we know that's coming. Uh, We have an opportunity to be your mouthpiece, your voice, Lord, to be the the feet of the gospel, the good news, Lord, going forth into our world. And so we pray that what tonight might be unbelief in some would be changed to belief. Lord, that hearing comes and, and the word of God would be spoken in such a way that the gospel is communicated. So bless us as we study your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 14, and the first of these three conditions that come into view with regard to national Israel, and first is God's righteousness. We'll pick up in verse 14 now to 18. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness? And so the the question seems to be, is God capable of being unfair? Is he capable of being unloving? Is he being, in essence, unjust? When you look at the, the, the plight of the Jewish people, you can almost come to that conclusion. And in fact, many people actually have. They've said, you know, the Lord's just forsaken them. And here's the problem with that. Then God is unfair. God is unjust. God has broken his promises. Because he said that they are his people. And his plans for them are good. 
You remember that Jeremiah 29, 11 promise was to the Jewish people. I know my plans for you, says the Lord. They are good. And you could put in there, in spite of the diaspora, in spite of the Holocaust, in spite of the scattering of the Jewish people to the four corners of the globe, in spite of persecution, you see God's plan still stands. So the question is a natural one, because this is a place where we struggle with God's sovereignty, with his actual allowances in this world as the sovereign ruler, because he's creator God, we have a tendency to look at the things that God does very strictly from a human perspective. And so this is probably a question, if we're honest, that I think most of us have at least pondered, if not thought, fairly thoroughly. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? He answers it and he says, certainly not. And again, he uses that phrase, meogenitu. There is no possible way. It, it, it cannot be. It's impossible. Certainly not. For he says to Moses, and this passage that we'll conclude this chapter with is filled with Old Testament quotation, analogy, and it gives us the picture of God's dealing with humankind really from the beginning. He, he could have said, well, let's take a look at Adam and Eve. Let's take a look at Cain and Abel. Let's take a look at Noah and his family. Let's take a look at Abraham. Let's take a look at Isaac. Let's take a look at Joseph. He could have actually used almost any analogy that you want with the Old Testament uh, patriarchs in view. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. You see, God has the right to be merciful to whomever he wants to be merciful. He's God. And so he's going to give us several arguments within this passage that, that will really help us understand God's ways a little better. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. In other words, God can do whatever God wants to do. He's bound by no one. He's beholden to no one, and he, he can, in essence, as he sees fit, work in this world whether we like it or not. You see, there are a lot of people who don't like the way God works. And let me give you an example of that to the extreme. There are people who believe that everyone should be saved. Now, while that is a wonderful idea, and I think a grand thought, probably most of us would even to some degree agree with it, I would love to see all people saved. But the fact of the matter is, not all will be saved. And in control of that, because there is a sovereign God who created his own creation, it is subject to him alone, and he made the way for us to be redeemed back to the Lord, he has also not made it so he has forced everyone to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So one could say, 
Is God unfair? God is not unfair. And he's going to illuminate this whole process for us in these remaining verses. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs. It's not you running alone. It's not you willing that something is so or thus. It's not your works and it's not your thoughts. But it is of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh. So here comes the first analogy. Says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared upon the earth, and therefore he has mercy on him who he wills, and whom he wills he, oops, I hate this word, hardens. So in view here is God's mercy, and then what seems to be, from our human perspective, our limited understanding And from the way this is phrased in English, here's God's mercy. And here's God kind of sort of being unfair. I mean, was Pharaoh really any worse than you and I? You probably know people that you look at and they're not saved and you're going, well, I did worse than that. Amen? You got some of those people in your life? I know some people right now who do not know the Lord, whom I can consciously say, I don't think they're any worse than I am, and yet they have not come to faith in Christ. And in fact, a few of those folks that I know personally have hard hearts. And chances are very likely that they will never come to faith in Christ. Now notice what I said chances are. I didn't say it was impossible. I said it was highly unlikely, even improbable. The reason being, the longer you hold on to a hard heart, the harder that heart gets. And the harder that hard heart gets, the harder it is for God to push grace and mercy into it. And so it isn't a problem with God, it's a problem with me. It's a problem with you. It's a problem with that person's own heart, which is already hard. It does not say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart before Pharaoh had a chance to be saved. It says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It does not say when that hardening happened. Be very careful. Because you can assign injustice to God. Well, Pharaoh never had a chance. And here's where this goes. And maybe you've thought this way. Well, what about Muslims? Born into a radical culture where the gospel hasn't been preached. What about those who were born into the depths of Hinduism? Did God, in essence, pre-harden their hearts so that they cannot receive the gospel? Let me say to you what Paul says. Certainly not. You see, that would make God unjust. That would make God unfair. The very claims that Paul answers Meogenitu to, 
what those things, if they were true, which they are not, would make God completely unjust, completely unfair. It wouldn't just make him sovereign. They would have never had a chance to believe, and therefore it was God who damned them. God doesn't do that. There will not be a single person who perishes, who spends eternity apart from God, that will not have themselves to blame for where they are currently residing. They will have made a conscious choice to reject the gospel. They will have not simply been born to one culture versus another, one place versus another, one family versus another. They will have not been Jew or Gentile, which is the example here. They will have made a choice to begin that hardening process. And so God's righteousness is in view. The divine election, the Lord's choosing, is another way to look at it. And so Paul quotes here from Exodus 33. And look, let's be real honest. Can we do that? How many of us in here deserve to be condemned and spend eternity in hell? Please raise your hands. I do. That's what I deserve. Praise God, I'm not going to get that. Why? Because of his mercy. He does not give me what I deserve. And in his grace, in the place of what I deserve... He gives me what I do not deserve. And so all of that is God's doing. That's not on me. I didn't all of a sudden get my life sort of squared away enough to where God goes, oh, well, he's squared away enough so I can save him now. The fact is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not one, including me tonight, by my own doing. The righteousness I have is not my own righteousness. The whole function of the first nine chapters is to point us to the one way and the one truth and the one life, and we can't get there on our own, and everything that happens is God's grace working in our lives. And so this serves to kind of put us on notice that God is holy. Ultimately, he has to punish sin. He's got no choice. Because he's holy. But he delays that punishment as long as he possibly can. And he's going to keep working with people until their own choices make their own decision so evident that in order that he might save some, God will say to them, Okay, if that's what you want, that is what you get. And so he uses the example of Moses and Pharaoh. You see, as D.L. Moody wisely said, if you try and explain God's election, you lose your mind, but if you explain it away, you might lose your soul. I will remind you again of that principle. God's choosing, God's hardening, God's election, God's foreknowledge, God's predestination, all of those things are very tough for us to wrap our heads around. But when we get to heaven, you're going to go, oh, that's what you meant. You'll understand it completely and fully. In the meantime, you're stuck with Bible expositors such as myself trying to help you understand what, for many, uh, is likely fairly ununderstandable. What does it mean, the hardening of the heart there in verse 18? 
It's an interesting word. It's only used a handful of times in all of Scripture. Uh, it, it is a very difficult word to precisely define in English because it's a compound word. And, and as you look at it, it's like, mm, man, I'm not... It, it, scolera runu. And, and what it means is this. It, it, it means to render stubbornness and, and to be obstinate. It, it, but it really, at its depth of meaning, means to confirm exactly what already is. Have you ever met a person who's obstinate? Have you ever met a person who's just hard to get along with? And they are always hard to get along with. It doesn't matter what you say to them. You could walk up, I love you and I brought you $10 million. I don't care, will be the response. Because they're just obstinate, right? They have that facial expression. They have a heart that when you talk to them, it doesn't matter what you, I brought you pie. Get that pie out of my face. Will be they're just hard-hearted. They are those people that can find something negative in everything, right? We call that a negative personality. Now put that on steroids and apply it to eternity. Now you have a person who says to God, "I don't care about grace. I don't care about the work of the Holy Spirit." I've done nothing wrong. I can pave my own way. Get out of my face. You see, God didn't create that heart in that person. That person, through their life's choices, have traveled a road that's compounded one thing on top of another thing on top of another thing, and they have continued to travel the same direction for a very long time. And here's a way that you can understand this. If I were to bring a very large blob of clay up here on the platform, and I'm talking a large one, let's make it about four feet tall, and let's make it about three feet in diameter, and it was still soft and supple and mushy and gushy, we could leave that thing here on the stage for probably a week or two. And on the outside, it'd kind of get a little crusty. And, and you, you, after a week, maybe two weeks, you'd probably have a tough time punching your finger into it. After three weeks, you'd have to hit it pretty hard. After a month or two, we'd need to bring a crane in here to get that thing off the stage because it would be hard as a rock, right? What has happened? It's only been the water that's been removed from the clay. The substance of the clay has not changed. It was clay when it came on the stage. It will be clay when it leaves the stage. The only difference is the living water is no longer in it. You get it? So here's what's happening. We're all clay. <laughs> right? We're all God's clay. And as long as we say, you know what? I'd really like to stay moist. God keeps sprinkling a little water on us. But the moment we start to fold our arms, because we fold our arms like this, don't we? 
metaphorically speaking with God. We fold our arms and we kind of look at him, well, I don't want any water to get in here. And you develop a little bit of a crust. And then you've got to sprinkle a whole lot of water on there to get any water on the inside. So imagine that God just pulls all the living water because he knows which direction you're going to go because he's God, right? He already knows you're going to dry up. And here's the problem with our own personal choices. How many of you have ever been affected, and I want you to raise your hand, how many of you in this room tonight have ever been affected negatively by the choices of someone else? Look around the room. So pretty much 100%. Now imagine that those, cho- those choices could have eternal complications. What would be the most just thing that a righteous God could do? If someone is going to continually make choices that will negatively affect the eternity of others, if you were a just God, what would you do? You would make it very evident that that person has a hardened heart so that anyone else would see that person and go, I don't want to become a lump of hard clay. So God pulls the water all the way out of that person and says, that's where they're going. I'm going to make it very obvious. God hardens what was already in the process of becoming hard. Clay with no water. In that Exodus account of Moses' confrontation, uh, remember what was going on there. You have two men. You have Pharaoh and you have Moses. How many of them were murderers? Both. How many of them were liars? Both. How many of them were stubborn and obstinate? Both. So it's not about whether they sinned, because they both sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Amen? It's the receptivity, the change that God wants to make. So what do we see in Moses' life? We see a broken man that is constantly saying, God, I'm a mess. I don't even know what I'm, who am I supposed to tell them has sent me? It's okay, Moses. I will go with you. You tell them that I am that I am sent you. How many times does Moses go to Pharaoh? Wasn't once, wasn't twice wasn't five times it was ten times and each time what did God do the first time God lets him off really easy and Moses's heart gets hard and by the time it's all done the firstborn are going to die what do you think was next Where do you think Pharaoh's heart was going to go? And don't you think that God knew exactly where Pharaoh's heart was going to go? So what does God do? He fully hardens Pharaoh's heart because he cares about the death of the innocent. He does not delight even in the death of the wicked, but he would rather that the one wicked Pharaoh and all of his compatriots perish than those who 
are still in the process of being just like Moses, man, we are a mess. God help us that we stay soft. We stay able to repent. You, you see the same sunlight that, that melts ice in the spring. You know, I can tell you living in the mountain, you so look forward to the end of winter. The first snow, you're out there, you're all giddy, you're playing in it, you know, and you're, you're wandering around, oh, isn't it? And you take pictures, and then uh, sometime in March, you're like, I- I'm going to kill the next person that even says snow. <laughs> you know, sunlight melts snow, also hardens clay. So be careful. What seems like it's good one day can become bad the next. God's not unrighteous in his dealings with Pharaoh because each one of those visits from Moses was an opportunity to Pharaoh say, for Pharaoh to say, I am wrong. I've messed up. I'm leading the people in being messed up. And there's a picture here, a little sub-picture, if you will, of the absolute fear that ought to be struck into the life of anyone who desires to be a pastor or a leader in the church. Because God holds all leaders more highly accountable than he does those who follow them. That's why scripture is very clear that not many among us should become pastors, for we will suffer the stricter condemnation. In other words, God's going to, Jeff, you knew but you didn't do anything with it. The next thing we see is God's justice. You see, God's sovereign will almost seems to create uh, another problem. Well, if God's sovereign, can I really resist him? You know, if if he's in control, I mean, can't he just make me do whatever he wants? And the answer is he can, but he doesn't. And he won't. God is in that sense a a gentleman. He honors your choice. He he looks at the things that you say and he takes them very, very, very seriously. He looks how you live your life and he allows you to do so without interceding in every single thing. He has a perfect plan for your life. And the easiest way to see this is a straight line. From God's perspective... Your life is filled with all kinds of events that are linked one to another in a straight line that's filled with joy and love and peace and all kinds of wonderful things. That's God's plan. But every choice that you make that's not his perfect choice, his perfect will, adds a little curve into the road of your life. And then it adds a mountain and then a canyon and then some roads that actually aren't paved and and a few trips through cactus and, you know, some time out there. I don't know how many of you ever wandered around the desert here in California. We have, we have some of the most desolate places on the planet right here in California. You don't need to go to the Sahara to see it. You can go to Kelso Dunes and see exactly the same thing here in California. You see, you can travel around. You can go a lot of different ways in this world. I highly suggest to all of us that we take the straight path. 
the narrow way that leads unto righteousness. That's the cleanest way to get from point A, your time of salvation, to point B, which is your maximum sanctification when you exit this earth. You see the straight line between those two places is God's plan. But in the meantime, he has not forced you, hear me well, not forced you to see things his way. He's given you the beautiful power of choice. He allows you to make your own plans. And then here's what he does. He sovereignly deals with your choices. And that sovereign dealing may include a good spanking now and again because he chastens those whom he loves. So the questions come to us, you know, why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much tragedy? Why, why does it seem like innocent people suffer and rich people who have everything, uh, you know, times don't and, you know, one saved and the other isn't? Oh, the glories of heaven kind of work all that out, don't they? You see what seems to be on this earth, the recompense for a life that's lived one way versus another is actually not. You see, we don't get our reward until we get home. Amen? We, we are allowed lots of joy and all kinds of wonderful things while we're here, but you may also have some tragedy from time to time because we live in a fallen world. But Genesis 18, and we'll get there in our study of the book of Genesis, which we're getting ready to start on Sunday nights. So if you haven't been coming out on Sunday nights, Genesis gets started this coming Sunday. But in chapter 18, there's a statement that's there, and it, sh- it says, very plainly, extremely concisely, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Again, the answer is, of course he will. God doesn't mess up. He's never ill-motivated. And so God's justice cannot be questioned. And though it seems like at times maybe we could, Paul gives us three basic answers to this charge. If you could resist him, you know, kind of with what, what right does God have to judge if he's given us the freedom to resist? That's the question that some people ask. Well, why didn't God just take away my free will and then I would have just done everything his way? Because then you wouldn't love him. You'd just be obedient to him. He'd either make things so miserable on you or so wonderful for you that you would just, everyone would just fall in line. We'd all be these little, you know, God robots. That's not love. That's purchasing affection. That is the very charge that Job made against, that the Satan, Satan made against Job, in essence, and why he was serving him in Job chapter 1. So look, you've just blessed him. That's why he loves you. That's why he serves you. And God said, oh, no, that's not true. But the story of the book of Job was one that Job got a, a, a rough deal from a righteous God when God was bragging about him to the devil. God is absolutely just. The first thing that we see, who are we, verses 19 to 21, to argue with God? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Job said much the same thing. Job, Job got a beat down from God, by the way. Where were you when I framed the world? The book of Job is, is so beautiful in this regard. 
Can you name the stars? I can, God says to him. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? And he uses the picture of clay. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and the other for dishonor? And so, basically, this is an argument from logic. God's creator, he made us. He says, look, this is how it goes. I can do anything I want with my clay. So even if I were to do something that you don't like, you don't understand, it's my prerogative, you're the clay, and I'm the potter. So there's argument number one. Look, I can't judge God. If he were to destroy all of us, he'd be perfectly just in doing so, amen? He could have, you know, Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're hanging out together, they blow it. God walks into the garden and says, sorry, a couple of piles of ash there, grab some more dirt, make some new people, this will be better. God would have been just in doing that, wouldn't he? He would have been perfectly just. He made Adam in the first place. He made Eve out of Adam. We were created in his image. Emphasis on the word that we see in Genesis 1-1, created. He made us. He can do whatever he wants with us. The second thing, God has divine purposes for everything. You may not see those divine purposes. Notice verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In other words, how many years did he have to struggle with the Egyptians? How many years did he have to put up with Pharaoh? How many years did he have to put up with Jeff Gill? What if God wanted to show his power by allowing some really wretched folks to exist on the earth and then seeing them come to faith in Christ? Or what if God just simply wants to be long-suffering? He's got a divine purpose. We may not know what that purpose is. You know, sometimes when people come and they'll, they'll ask for counsel on something, I have to just simply say these words you don't want to hear. I don't know. You may have seen on the, on the entrance of my door, it doesn't say God. It says, Senior Pastor Jeff Gill. Underneath that, I'm going to put, not God. There's just times, I don't know. God's at work doing something. I don't have a specific answer. Why did God make puppies cute? Because you'd kill them. Because they eat your whole house. You know, some things we have answers to. Other things we don't. Why do precious believers get cancer? Why did God allow the Holocaust? His ways are above my ways. Some days I can't know what he's doing. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Oh, my goodness. How he has made known 
His glory on the vessels of mercy. You got one on the platform right here. A vessel that God has deeply and richly and wonderfully poured His mercy into. Not given me what I've deserved, but highly favored me. Blessed me. Sometimes I look at my life and go, this has got to be a dream. Lord, you're too good. Which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called. Not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. He says, look, I have my purposes. You see, the Jewish people were, from God's perspective... They were his chosen. I want to pour out my spirit upon them. He, he in essence, fitted them to receive that blessing. No people group has ever been favored like the Jewish people. But no people group has ever suffered like the Jewish people. Both are true. Blessed of God, chosen of the Lord, and persecuted without mercy for for millennia. God has his purposes. And surely you can see that in the life of Moses and in Israel, you know, look, I mean, if I'm God and I part the Red Sea, and these, you know, one, two million people. Uh, when we were in Elat, we were just slightly to the north of where it is believed, and there's been some archaeological evidence because there's chariot wheels out in the middle of the Red Sea, uh, which really don't have any explanation, especially mixed with the armor and the other things that are out there. But, but it didn't happen, remember that. So, so, so as, 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 as the people are crossing the Red Sea, and they get... The water's walled up. It's held back. And they walk through. Remember, it says on dry ground. You know, they're picking up starfish as they're going. Kids are playing with sea slugs. This is cool. But they get to the other side. They're not there ten minutes. God brought us down here to die. Does that make any sense at all? No. Because if he wanted to kill you, he could have drowned y'all about ten minutes earlier. But see, that's the way we see things. We see things from the physical perspective of our lives lived here on this earth. God sees those same things from his eternal perspective. He knows why they had to go through the Red Sea. He knows why they ended up wandering in the wilderness. He knows why they got to the border of Kadesh Barnea and no one was willing to go in except Joshua and Caleb. But all along the way, God was merciful. God was just. A third thing, verse 25. Every bit of this is a fulfillment of the prophetic word of God. 100%. Verse 25. As he says also in Hosea. Love the book of Hosea. I will call them my people. Who are not my people. So who were God's people? The Jewish people. 
Who are not God's people? Us, the Gentiles. And her beloved, who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. And as Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. And I love this because this goes back to the prophecies of Hosea and Isaiah. There are two quotations from each of those two prophets. And if you go to Isaiah 7, you'll see Isaiah has two sons. And one, oddly enough, his name is Shir Yashub. A remnant shall return. The other one, Maher Shalal Hajbaz. Swift to the spoil. So God's saying, look, some of all y'all are going to be swift to the spoil, and some of you are going to be a remnant who return. For he will finish the work and cut short in righteousness. Because the Lord will make short work upon the earth. Oh, praise the Lord God in heaven for his short work on the earth. Unless those days be shortened, none should survive. You ever have those days when you just praise God that life is but a vapor? (laughs) And here today and gone tomorrow, are we? As Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed... We would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. And so the case in point comes from both the prophets Hosea and Isaiah. And he's paraphrasing the prophet Hosea here. And it helps to have a little bit of understanding of that book. If you've never read it or studied it, it is one of those, you just, you read it, you're going, he did not just say that. There is no way in the world that this man is being told, not only do I want you to marry a prostitute, but I want you to put up with her prostitution. You just go do your thing, Hosea, and I want you to marry this gal. And so the Lord in Hosea 1 says, the Lord said to Hosea, go and take up for yourself a wife of harlotry. That's a nice way of saying a prostitute. Get this, and have children of harlotry. Now, I'm pretty sure most of you are thinking about your spouse, and you're going, "Uh uh-uh, that ain't happening. This is not going down at our house. And yet, this is the divine plans of the Lord God himself. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. A little further on in that first chapter, Basically, God says, not only do I want you to marry a harlot, I want you to marry her very specifically because she is a harlot. I know you ladies are kind of cringing right now. We could turn it into a male prostitute if you want, <laughs> for sake of analogy. I, you know, I don't think this is a male-female thing. It was, the, it was the structure of the society then, so let's not get hung up on that, okay? 
Verse 3, so Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. And she conceived and bore him a son, and the Lord said, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Man, what a great way to start your family. I'm going to give you a child that's going to bring an end to the house of Israel. And then she, Gomer, conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Rumaha, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I should ever forgive them. My goodness. This is like, you are not telling me these things, Lord. What did I do to you? Did you wake up and have a bad day? Did you all of a sudden become capricious? I thought you were righteous and just. It's not bad enough. You want me to go marry a a harlot, but you want me to name my kids what? And so when she had weaned Lo-Rumaha, she conceived and gave birth a son, and the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, you would think that the story of the Jewish people would end with the book of Hosea, right? But that's not what God's doing here. He's making a picture for them. These names represent God's attitude towards Israel because they had become disobedient. He's basically saying the same thing he said to Pharaoh. If you want it that way, I'm going to let you have it. You can walk around and you're disobedient. And oh, by the way, I'm going to pick up another people who are not my people and I'll deal with them for a while. And we know it because we're going to see it when we get to chapter 11, but only until the times of the Gentiles are finished. And then all Israel will be saved. God's saying, look, my character hasn't changed, but if you want to keep going this way, you keep going this way. I'm going to seal exactly what you have asked for. Hosea goes on in chapter 2. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And then speaking to Israel, he goes on to say, And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and compassion. He says, look, I meant what I said. But I want you to know there's a, there's a purpose for it. I have my purposes. And I want you to see him. I want you to know him. And just as Hosea protected and supported Gomer, even during her salacious ways, can you imagine? He, he goes and buys her on the, on the sail block, and here's this naked woman whom everyone in town knows exactly who she is. And Gomer says, That's my wine. <laughs> Come on home, honey. You ever thought about your own life that way? Because God knows your nakedness. And God's saying, that's my son. That's my daughter. You need to thank God for this passage. 
because it's you and me. It's also national Israel. They've kind of wandered around a lot of different places. They haven't been faithful, but God is going to bring them back. The prophet Hosea saw that time. He, he wasn't afraid to believe God. Tonight, please, family, don't be afraid to believe God. Believe God. His promises are true. They are yes and they are amen. He hasn't changed. He does not change. For I am the same yesterday, today, and for ever. Amen? I change not, says the Lord. Don't miss that in this passage. You see, you can kind of get stuck on the negative side of it. There's a beautiful side to it. And though the nation Israel still largely rejects Messiah, they're still God's people, and God's still going to keep that promise. And the glory is now they're back in the land. Independence Day, just celebrated just a, a month and a bit ago. May 14th, 1948, on our calendar. Hebrew calendar is a little different. From that point forward, they're in the land. God's moving towards that time. But right now, a vast majority of Jews in the world are either non-practicing Jews, they're, they're Jews in essence, in their heritage, and they claim that vociferously. It's a good word, isn't it? It means like really hard. Yeah, I'm Jewish and proud of it. I'm not saying I am, but as well they should be. Why? Because they are God's chosen people. I'd be bragging about it too. But it was supposed to be something that drove them to the Lord. And instead it drove them to pride. And it drove them to works. And it drove them to thinking that they were better than everybody else. And God said, okay, well, I'll just take up a people who are not my people until you get this right in your heads and your hearts. Right now you have a heart of stone. I want to give you a heart of flesh. Peter said much the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Can you imagine Peter preaching his Pentecost sermons there in the beginning of the book of Acts? He gets to Acts chapter 2. Men and brethren, this same Christ whom you have crucified, by that power this man stands before you today healed. And they're renting their garments. What shall we do? <laughs> well, we know what happened. A few thousand of them got saved and the church grew. Amen? Well, one day that's going to happen globally. But if you're with us on Sunday morning, it's not going to become a, a reality until that great falling away and the revealing of the man of sin. The church is taken home. Uh, the influence of the church in the world taken out. And it's just going to be God and the Jewish people against the Antichrist. It's going to be a crazy time. 
You want to know Jesus. You want to be in heaven ahead of that, by the way. Paul next cites Isaiah the prophet. He said, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel shall be as the sand. He goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. He says, look, this was the promise. What was the promise? I'm going to make you the father of a nation. And I'm going to make your descendants as numerable as the sand of the sea. And through you, Messiah will come. God kept his promise. The truth was divinely proclaimed. Just like Hosea, Isaiah says the same thing. He's saying, look, here's the deal. Except the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a posterity. That word posterity or seed is actually the Greek word sperma. And it means exactly what you think it is. There's a handful of people left to be progenitors of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people have been brought to that point time after time after time after time after time after time again. At the end of World War II, nearly gone. And in fact, if there had not been a number of people that thought in their hearts and minds, look, there's not many of us left. And Zionism begins to grow. Theodor Herzl gets this crazy idea. We'll go inhabit these swamps that are now modern-day Tel Aviv. There wouldn't be Jewish people today. But there is, because God keeps his promises. Doesn't matter who you pick, Hosea, Isaiah, Amos, Amos the prophet, much the same story. He just presses the point. He says, look, here's the deal. What you're really waiting for is God's amazing grace. He said, what should we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue the righteousness have attained unto righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they didn't seek it by faith. Now remember, this is the Apostle Paul, Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, Jew of Jews. He knew what he was talking about. He says, look, we weren't looking with the eyes of faith. We were looking at our whole relationship with God through works. Works Works-based righteousness. And by the works of the flesh can no one be saved. It can't happen. Because they did not seek it by the faith, but as it were by the works of the law. And for they stumbled at the stumbling stone exactly as it is written. And again, he goes back to the prophet Isaiah. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone. A rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Notice Paul doesn't say here the elect and the unelect, the chosen and the unchosen. 
He chooses to end this chapter by focusing on faith and what it produces in our lives, which is God's grace, His amazing grace. That's why the hall of faith is the hall of faith and not the hall of election or predestination or foreordination. It's the hall of faith. And because faith is the gift that's given to us that produces the grace that we get. For by grace you've been saved through. It says through. Why does it say through? Because the vehicle of your grace is faith. You can't have God's grace without faith. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, Without faith it is impossible to please God. You see, you have to take that one way. We're all saved that way. We're not simply on a saved list or a faith or, or an unsaved list. We're, we're not, you know, God isn't in heaven. It's like, okay, well, who's on the list? Peter, read me the list. I've got to find out who's on the list. Are they elected or not elected? Are they saved or not saved? I'm really confused. No, God has left in view one thing and one thing alone for every last human being. Have you believed on the only begotten Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Not do you know how to be religious. Not are you part of this sect or that sect. Were you born here or born there? Are you Jew or Gentile? Are you man or woman? Are you whatever? But have you believed? That is the only criteria. Always has been. You see, it is a divine paradox. So I'm going to bring the worship team back up. And I want to kind of close with a thought here. You see, your salvation is not just God's sovereign appointing all by itself. Sovereign appointing doesn't sit over here in a box. So you can't actually say, well, yeah, God appointed, God chose me. Elect, chosen, God sovereignly worked in my life. Here's the insane part. Those things are all true. God did choose you. God has elected you. God did foreknow who you are. Everything about you, start to finish. But in the face of all that information is your part. The faith to believe. You have to make the choice to choose God. Oh, he's chosen you. And right now, if you're here in this room and you do not know the Lord Jesus, you just heard the gospel. And God's asking you to make a choice. Because if you can't say you've chosen God, then all of his choosing makes no difference. Yes, he's sovereign. 
And yes, that's what he wants, because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what he wants. That's his divine prerogative. But he's not going to force that on anybody. So it's not whether you're on one list versus another list. It's have you chosen to have him make sure your name's in the Lamb's Book of Life. Have you said yes to what he's chosen for you? That's what he wanted for Israel. And that's what one day will happen for national Israel as a nation. They will see Messiah and they will mourn him who they have pierced. But right now they're stumbling over the stumbling stone. Right now there are some stub toes. That's why we need to pray for the Jewish people. But we also need to pray for those who are here tonight. And maybe you haven't believed by faith. So would you stand with me? And I want to simply ask you to Close your eyes, bow your heads. I'm going to have the pastors come forward at this time. And maybe you're here tonight and you had the wrong concept of what it means to be a child of God. And you thought because your grandma and your mom and dad and America is a Christian country after all. You you thought maybe that you were part of a chosen race. Maybe you had been selected and so you don't need to do any selecting. But maybe in hearing this message tonight, you've decided you need to select what God has selected for you. You need to make a choice to follow Christ. If that's you and you want to receive the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, I'm just simply going to ask you to raise your hand right where you're at so I can see it. And I want to pray with you to receive Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior. Anyone at all? Anyone anywhere in this building? Maybe online. I see that hand. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? Keep your hand up for just a moment. I see that hand in the back as well. Is there anyone else? You could say tonight, I've never made that faith choice. Just slip your hand up. I'm going to pray with you right where you are. Anyone else? Praise the Lord. The angels in heaven are throwing a little party right now. Because salvation has come to the house of the Lord. I see that hand as well. Scripture is very clear. If you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. If that's you, raise your hand right now. I see that hand in the back. I see this other hand. I see that hand as well. God's been waiting a long time. I see that hand too. God's been waiting a long time for you to make the choice to follow him. Praise the Lord. For those, I see that hand as well. It's not too late. You see, you have to choose. And you have to do it before you leave this earth. For those that have raised your hands... You can put your hand down right now if you would. And would you just pray with me? If you just simply pray these words out loud, you have to mean them from your heart. They mean nothing if you're just following me. But if you mean them, 
God hears them and he'll answer this prayer right now. Heavenly Father, I confess that I am a sinner and I desperately need a Savior. I realize that you, Jesus, died on Calvary's cross for me. And in doing so, you paid the the price of my sin. I'm asking you to forgive my sin and to write my name in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, I promise to walk with you all of my days. Would you help me by the power of the Holy Spirit to do just that? I thank you for that forgiveness that is now mine because of the cross of Christ. And I receive gladly you as my Savior and also my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.